For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order from mediators world news headquarters in bozeman montana this is cal's weekend review presented by steel steel products are available only at authorized dealers for more go to steeldealers.com now here's your host ryan cal callahan the Colombian Congressional Court declared on May 2nd that sport fishing is now unconstitutional in the South American country. The court admitted that there is no consensus as to whether fish are sentient beings, but stated that even in the absence of scientific certainty, the precautionary principle and the risk of damage to the environment make the ban necessary. If this makes any sense to you, I'll sell you a bridge in Brooklyn, and I think you're going to like it. Here's another mind-numbing part of this ruling. The court only banned sport fishing, which is defined as catch and release. As Maggie Hudlow, a fantastic reporter and journalist here at uh, Meat Eater, points out in a great article at TheMeatEater.com, this means that fishing with meshes, dragnets, and dynamite is all still legal. If the court wanted to protect fisheries, it would presumably target fishing practices that actually hurt those ecosystems. Blast fishing, for example, or fishing with dynamite, has been practiced in the country for decades and dreamed about by 14-year-old young men for twice as long. I love a good explosion, for example, but I don't need a PhD or a law degree to know that using dynamite to kill and harvest fish is far more damaging to the environment than catch and release. Same goes for net fishing. Net fishing can be done sustainably, but it is more indiscriminate. Bycatch is unavoidable. Bycatch would be catching fish outside of your target species, and many fish are injured and ultimately wasted. These types of fishing are all still legal in Colombia. What's more, if recreational anglers want to continue pursuing their hobby, they're going to have to kill everything they catch, according to the Colombian courts. This will help protect the environment and keep fish from feeling pain. In this case, the court isn't apparently interested in protecting the environment, Instead, it appears to be convinced by the animal rights crowd. 
These folks argue that catch-and-release fishing is cruel and that catch-and-release angling and anglers are motivated by nothing other than a desire to inflict pain. The problem, of course, is that we don't actually know whether fish even feel pain. Numerous studies have been concluded, but none have been conclusive. Even if fish do feel pain, over 90% of released fish live to swim another day when handled and released properly. Colombia isn't the only country to ban catch and release. Germany has had a similar ban since the 90s, and Switzerland prohibits releasing non-native fish and fish that are unlikely to survive. Costa Rica tried to ban sport fishing, but they backed off after politicians and judges realized that the recreational fishing industry brings in about $250 million every year. Money talks, I guess, or in this case, swims. Hopefully, Colombian officials will have the same awakening. The sport fishing ban won't be finalized for another year. Until then, pro-fishing groups will be filing lawsuits arguing that the ruling harms the environment as well as the economy. Now, I have said before on this podcast that we anglers all may have a serious day of reckoning when aliens in the form of earthworms come down to Earth looking for their relatives on this planet. Anyone who has ever corkscrewed a nightcrawler onto a slow death hook knows exactly what I'm talking about. Semantics, formal or cognitive. Do we know if fish do or do not feel pain? Maybe not. But if you are into catching fish, you know for absolute certain they do not like being caught. They recognize on whatever level that whatever is happening to them is against their will and against their biological plan. For instance, and possibly related. Just pay attention. Hang on there with me for a minute. My dog Snort, old Snorticus, a pampered domestic animal, has no worries in the world and goes through her day as if she owns the world. It's a fun thing to watch, an animal with confidence. But she recently hurt her toe. And when she does something to aggravate that wound, she yelps and shivers and looks to me for support. Is she feeling pain? Who cares? That dog, I believe, senses her frailty, recognizes that she is no longer invincible, and that death is a real thing. She recognizes her own mortality. She conceives of the end. And that is a sad thing to witness. These are just fun things to think about. Fish are tasty. I'm going to continue to pursue them, at times even with worms on a corkscrew barbed hook. But I will, at the same time, do my most to take care of the resource so it can feed me and others again. This week, we have a ton to talk about, so we're going to get right into it, with the exception of this statement. I was in Boise last week attending part of the Idaho Fishing Game in-service training school, and I quite embarrassingly forgot to thank everyone in that state agency for the work they do on behalf of wildlife, habitat, access, and recreation. Keep up the good work. I know it can be thankless at times, but I sure appreciate you, and I hope to see you again. Thanks for having me. This week, we've got the poaching desk. We've got you, Palm, and a lawyer posed as a hunter. Moving on to the law enforcement desk. It's been a busy month over at the poaching desk. We're not even politicians or reality TV stars can escape the long arm of the law. One of those politicians is Utah State Rep. Travis Sigmiller. Sigmiller recently resigned his seat in the legislature after he was charged in April with illegally taking protected wildlife while trespassing. The lawmaker allegedly killed a white-tailed doe with a shotgun in a residential neighborhood back in August, according to Deseret News. 
He possessed a valid license, and the hunting season was open, but he did not have permission to hunt on the property. It is also illegal to hunt within 600 feet of a house or dwelling, which Siegmiller did, when confronted by a resident of the neighborhood. He allegedly claimed he was out of work and needed the meat for his family. He also said he had secured permission from the property owner. By the time the police arrived, he had already dragged the doe into his car and left. He pleaded no contest at his hearing, but it looks like his political career, like that doe, won't survive the incident. DTJ, Donald Trump Jr., has also gotten mixed up with an illegal bear baiting incident from a 2018 hunt in Utah. The former president's namesake hasn't been accused of wrongdoing. Instead, prosecutors are alleging that Trump Jr.'s guide, a fellow named Wade Lemon, instructed his scouts to bait a site with a black bear's favorite snacks, including grain, oil, and pastries. The site was baited without Trump Jr.'s knowledge, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, but he did kill a bear at or near that spot during the hunt. For his part, Lemon has been charged with a felony and could face up to five years in prison. The Salt Lake Tribune also reports that Lemon has been investigated a total of eight times by the Utah DNR. This is the first time he's been charged with a felony. So why does Donald Trump Jr.'s name keep popping up? Well, I'll tell you, it probably wouldn't make headlines if it didn't. Moving from politics to reality TV, which, as it happens, isn't much of a move these days. Celebrity hunter Blaine Anthony has been charged with violating the Lacey Act after he illegally killed a black bear in Alaska, lied about the incident, and used footage of the hunt on his show. Anthony produces a program called The Bear Whisperer and runs a production company creatively named Nature Productions. In May of 17, Anthony allegedly shot a black bear in Kenai Fjords National Park, where hunting is illegal. Then, according to a criminal complaint obtained by the Daily Beast, he claimed on his declaration papers that he killed the bear at a legal spot 19 miles away. Footage of that hunt, along with another illegal kill, were aired on The Bear Whisperer. Anthony is facing up to one year in prison and a $100,000 fine for the misdemeanor. As of this taping, he has not commented on the charges. Here's another violation of the Lacey Act sent in by listener Jason Maddox. A Georgia man is headed to prison after being convicted of illegally netting thousands of turtles in Georgia and shipping them to California. Nathan Horton made over $150,000 between 2015 and 2017. Prosecutors said the turtles were destined for Asia, where they can be sold for a substantial profit. Horton pleaded guilty to his charges in December of last year and was sentenced in May to one year and one day in prison three years of supervised release, and ordered to pay a fine of $10,000. That poaching case is all wrapped up, but this one is just getting started. Wildlife officials in British Columbia are asking for the public's help in finding the person who killed two cougar kittens, dismembered them, and dumped them on a Forest Service road on Vancouver Island. It is illegal in British Columbia to kill cougar kittens or cougars in a family unit. The individual who violated this law shot both kittens and cut off their heads and paws before leaving them on the side of the road. Officials haven't speculated on what motivated the poacher or announced any suspects. If you live on Vancouver Island and hear someone bragging at the bar about his new cougar paw keychain, give the BC Conservation Office a call. I don't know why anyone would brag about having the paws of cougar kittens, but I also don't know why anyone would cut them off in the first place. In any case, keep your ears peeled. BCers. Last one for you. Two Georgia men have been charged with poaching an alligator out of season near Augusta. 
The suspects were caught red-handed when a concerned citizen contacted the Georgia DNR and said that two men had shot an alligator and were attempting to load it into a truck. Only one of the men was still at the scene when the authorities arrived, but they found enough evidence to charge both of them. To add insult to injury, the poachers broke the back window of their truck in the hurry to load the 10-foot gator into the bed. Quick side note on gators. The story of the American alligator is one of the coolest in conservation history. Animals don't often make it off the endangered species list, and those that do rarely develop a huntable population. But in the last 50 years, American alligators have done both. Gators were placed on the endangered species list in 1967, but thanks to the efforts of hunters and conservationists, the species became one of the first success stories of the Endangered Species Act. Today, gator populations have recovered to the point that states throughout the southeast, including Texas and North Carolina, offer hunting tags. So, if you ask me, those two gator poachers deserve whatever they have coming to them. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA, and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get, which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Moving on. 
Utah Representative Siegmiller wasn't the only politician who found himself in hot water this week after a hunting-related incident. An Illinois congressional candidate named Jesse Rising got called out by local media for faking a hunting scene in a recent campaign video. Reesing holds degrees from both Yale and Harvard Law School and worked as a lawyer for a high-powered corporate law firm. Now, he's running for Congress in Illinois' 13th District, and he's doing his very, very best to appear to voters like anything but an Ivy League-educated hotshot lawyer. In his most recent campaign video, Reesing can be seen decked out in camo and hunter's orange while holding a shotgun. Elsewhere on his campaign website, he proclaims his support for the Second Amendment using an image from the same photo shoot. And that's exactly what this hunt turned out to be, a photo shoot. In a stunning display of journalistic ingenuity, local reporters sent a Freedom of Information Act request to the Illinois DNR. They wanted to know whether Reesing possessed a current hunting license in the state. The DNR said that Reesing doesn't have a hunting license, and when asked about his contradiction, Reesing admitted that he hadn't hunted since he was a kid. Reesing told the outlet, We were out doing some pheasant hunting with the crew. I didn't actually go out that day, but we got the photos and that's what they are. This is only making the week in review because this is a fun trend to follow. Reesing isn't the first politician to pretend to be a dedicated hunter in a misguided attempt to appeal to rural voters. In 2004, then-Massachusetts Senator John Kerry orchestrated a staged goose hunt in Ohio. Kerry also happens to be a Yale graduate, but when he walked into an Ohio grocery store to get a hunting license, he reportedly said, and I'm quoting here, Can I get me a hunting license? I don't know if he tried a rural Ohio accent as well, but in any case, things went downhill from there. I guess it's good that Kerry at least had a hunting license. And who can forget Mitt Romney's claims of being a lifelong hunter? Romney made the claim during a campaign stop in 07. The next day, his campaign issued a statement clarifying that the former Massachusetts governor had, in fact, been hunting twice. The day after that, Romney contradicted his own campaign and claimed to have hunted rodents and rabbits since he was 15 years old. But that didn't sit well with the intrepid journalists over the Associated Press. They asked wildlife officials whether they had records of Romney's hunting licenses in the states he had lived. Apparently, Romney had never owned a license in Michigan, Massachusetts, or New Hampshire. Utah officials said they were not permitted to release those records. Romney claimed he never hunted anywhere he needed a license. Obviously, um, what do they say? Mimicry is the closest form of flattery, something along those lines. So as a sportsman, you know, we kind of blush when these folks try to appeal to us this hard. But at the same time, these sons of guns better be representing us when they make it into office. And often, even though they try to represent themselves as hunters in the public eye, what they need to do is represent hunters and hunting at the ballot box. To give you an idea of how important politicians think the hunting vote is, Reesing, the dude from Illinois that started this article, injured his neck playing football for Yale. He recovered from that injury, then founded a nonprofit to help veterans get through college. He said he grew up hunting, but his injury keeps him from raising a shotgun. Hunters, like most folks, appreciate authenticity. If politicians want to appeal to the hunting community, running out buying some orange and holding up a shotgun isn't the way to do it. Again, be receptive when hunters pick up the phone or email you and ask you to represent hunters and hunting by doing your job at the legislature or state house or whatever level of government you're in.
Moving on to the turtle desk. It seems politicians aren't the only clueless critters wandering aimlessly across the universe. According to a new study, hawksbill sea turtles don't really know where they're going. A team of scientists used GPS technology to track 22 of these turtles along their route from the nesting grounds in the Chagos Archipelago to foraging sites elsewhere in the Indian Ocean. The turtles eventually reached their final destination, but they didn't exactly take the shortest route. The team watched as turtles traveled along paths the study described as circuitous. According to the old thesaurus, synonyms for circuitous include roundabout, indirect, winding, and meandering. The straight-line distance to the foraging sites was about 176 kilometers. Most turtles traveled twice that distance, and one poor turtle traveled 1,306 kilometers, over seven times the distance before winding up where it wanted to be. But don't judge these hawkbills too harshly. If I stuck you on a tiny archipelago on the Indian Ocean and asked you to find another group of tiny islands somewhere to the west, you'd have a hard time too. Sea turtles famously travel thousands of miles in the open ocean, from their nesting grounds to their feeding grounds and back. Scientists believe they do this by imprinting on the magnetic field of their birth area and navigating based on changes in the Earth's magnetic field. Green turtles, for example, have been tracked traveling from that same archipelago to the mainland of Africa, almost 5,000 kilometers away. It's an amazing ability, but this study suggests that their GPS system isn't what you'd call precise. It's one thing to hit a continent the size of Africa. It's another thing to find a tiny island in the middle of the ocean. The researchers on this study believe that the turtle's navigation system can tell them when they've gone way off course, but their margin of error can be several hundred kilometers. Once they finally get close enough to an island, they can smell it or look for landmarks they recognize. Hawksbill turtles can be found in the tropical and subtropical waters of all the world's major oceans. But in the U.S. waters, they were listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act in 1970. They face threats from fishing bycatch and habitat degradation, but they're most threatened by illegal poaching. Their beautiful shell is prized by craftspeople to create jewelry and trinkets, and this poaching is largely what nearly drove the species to extinction. So, the next time you feel a little lost in an unfamiliar part of the world, be glad you aren't wandering through millions of miles of open ocean trying to keep your species from going extinct. A little perspective for you. On top of that, if you know anyone who lives on an island and you've ever tried to, let's say, plan a trip with those people, this could be the same affliction. The whole island time phenomenon. Perhaps human islanders run off of the Earth's magnetic field as well and also have a giant margin of error. Those two things aside, once again, if you find a beautiful, exotic trinket on the internet or in some hobby shop booth somewhere, maybe think twice about buying it. At the very least, inquire what type of turtle that fancy set of earrings came from. Moving on. For the first time in over a century, river otters are on the Detroit River. That's right, these furry semi-aquatic mammals have moved back to Motown. The biologists say it's a great sign for the overall health of the ecosystem. River otters were extirpated from the Detroit River in the 19th century thanks to development, the fur trade, and river pollution. Monroe County historian Gerald P. Wikes told Great Lakes Now that he can't find any record of otters in the area past the early 1900s. Quick side note, extinction is the term used when an animal no longer exists anywhere on Earth. 
extirpation is what happens when an animal no longer exists in a particular area. For example, house mice may never be extinct, but with a cleverly laid trap line, you may be able to extirpate them from the walls of your apartment. River otters started making a comeback in the Detroit area in the 1980s when the Ohio Department of Natural Resources reintroduced otters to rivers and streams in eastern Ohio. Those populations slowly moved west, and by the early 2000s, they could be found near Toledo. If you're a little fuzzy on your Midwest geography, Toledo is only about 60 miles south of Detroit. The Michigan Department of Natural Resources fur bearer specialist, Adam Bump, told the Detroit News that otters are known for being playful because they're such damn good hunters. With webbed feet and a sleek, streamlined body, otters are tailor-made to hunt fish, crayfish, and other aquatic critters. They're so good, in fact, that unlike many other wild animals, they have enough free time to mess around. It's kind of like tagging out on opening day of archery in Idaho. Tagless on August 31st puts you in front of college football down at the bar. Get to see how the other half lives. Moving on. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a lawsuit being brought by a group of Montana landowners against the state's wildlife management officials. Today, I have more sordid details. Trust me, this is going to be an ongoing segment. The suit is being brought by an outfit called United Property Owners of Montana, or UPOM. They're calling on Montana's wildlife management bodies to kill or relocate 50,000 elk, mostly in the eastern portions of the state. This is a relatively small group of landowners, judging by their most recent tax filings. But the lawsuit has garnered lots of media attention in the suit. UPOM argues that the Montana Fish and Wildlife Commission and the Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks are legally obligated to reduce elk herds to population objectives. While some elk management units have too few elk, UPOM claims that 59 of the 96 units are overpopulated. They want these elk herds culled because they claim that the elk are damaging property. UPOM doesn't describe this damage in detail, but that's sort of besides the point. They base their argument on a portion of Montana law passed in 2003 that requires the Fish and Wildlife Commission to set population limits and then aim for those limits when setting harvest and permit regulations. They're asking the court to give the commission and the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks 90 days to develop a plan to remove, harvest, or eliminate 50,000 elk as quickly as possible. For some perspective, the total elk herd in the state is about 140,000 animals. This isn't the first time that landowners have raised this issue. When they do, the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks has a pretty simple solution. Let public land hunters solve the problem, rather than spend millions of taxpayer dollars killing or relocating elk. State wildlife officials encourage landowners to simply allow the public to hunt on their property. UPOM admits that this has been the advice of wildlife officials, but they make it sound like they're being held hostage. They accuse the commission and FWP of refusing to help them unless they allow public hunting. But in their own lawsuit, UPOM cites a portion of Montana code that says a landowner may only destroy elk causing property damage after the landowner allows unrestricted public hunting. Unsurprisingly, they argue that this law is unconstitutional. In case you needed any more evidence of UPOM's biases, here's how they characterize public land hunters. Quote, When defendants say public hunting, they require landowners to throw their property wide open to strangers, including dangerous and reckless hunters or people with a reputation for damaging private property. End quote. 
Last I checked, there are a lot of laws on the books prohibiting reckless hunting, and if anyone damages property, landowners can call the police. Believe it or not, the lawsuit goes downhill from here. In addition to forcing Montana wildlife officials to kill 50,000 elk, UPOM also asked the court to strike down two other laws they don't like. First, they want the court to revert all wildlife policy to the state legislature. Montana law gives the Fish and Game Commission the authority to manage wildlife, but UPOM believes that only the legislature may set policy for the state of Montana, and this statute represents an unconstitutional delegation of the legislative power to the commission. In other words, rather than letting scientists and biologists manage wildlife populations, they want politicians in the legislature making those decisions. UPOM also doesn't like that the Fish and Game Commission is required to encourage sport hunting when crafting their policies. They argue that the legislature has never given the commission permission to encourage sport hunting, and they want the court to declare that the commission may no longer consider this factor when setting elk management regulations. If successful, this lawsuit would upend Montana's well-established wildlife management model. As in most states, the legislature has given wildlife agencies and commissions the authority to manage game species. These biologists are supposed to make decisions based on science, and they have the flexibility to respond to complex and evolving ecosystems. If the elk herd is in trouble, we can't rely on political animals to make good decisions for the health of that resource in a timely manner. If you follow politics at all, I'm sure you know why. Unfortunately, Montana isn't the only state in this constant tug-of-war between the legislature and wildlife departments. In Michigan, for example, HB 5740 would create a new seven-day license option for seniors. HB 5902 would legalize the use of single-bite bait for deer and elk hunting. You don't have to have an opinion on either of those proposals to know that these sorts of policy changes are best left to Michigan's Natural Resource Commission. I don't know what's motivating the sponsor of those two bills, but I'm skeptical that it's sound science. Thank you to listener Rafe Petty for sending that one in. In Pennsylvania, the legislature kept the state's game commission from tweaking seasons and bag limits for 2022 and 2023. The General Assembly passed a bill adding a ninth commissioner, but the Senate failed to fill enough vacancies on the commission to reach a quorum. Without a quorum, the commission couldn't legally meet so they had to adopt last year's seasons and bag limits for this year's hunting season. Thanks to listener Tracy Held for calling that to our attention. In 2021, the Idaho legislature infamously passed a bill aimed at decreasing the wolf population. The bill allowed hunters to use any means of take to target wolves, including baiting, night vision scopes, snares, and poison. It also removed the limit on the number of wolf tags that could be purchased in the state, it was promoted by the agriculture and livestock community, but opposed by the Idaho Department of Fish and Game and Fish and Game Commission. They said that while they shared the legislature's desire to lower the wolf population, they objected to the legislature setting seasons and means of take. I could go on, but you get the idea. When legislatures start setting wildlife regulations, you start seeing policies aimed at pleasing special interest groups. Wildlife departments and commissions aren't perfect, but they're in the best position to manage the resources we all share. If you want to help fight this lawsuit, support one of the organizations in the coalition that is opposing it. These include the Montana Chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Hellgate Hunters and Anglers, Helena Hunters and Anglers, Public Land Water Access Association, and the Montana Bow Hunters Association. 
please stand up and support the proper management of wildlife. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. As per usual, I want to know what's going on in your neck of the woods, so please write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at themeateater.com. And as we head into a rainy, snowy Memorial Day weekend here in Montana, you may think that you want to just stick around home and work on the old farm step. If so, go to www.steeldealers.com and find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need and they won't send you home with what you don't. Thanks again and I'll talk to you next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.